I I'm nervous. I'm just being honest here. I'm nervous about losing the speculative philosophy that I love so much because mm-hmm. it's like it's Gedanken or whatever the German word is for it. it's it's too speculative. I I love going in on like um, inverted qualia type stuff where it's like mm-hmm. what if this highlighter looks like it's yellow to me but it's you know it's your violet like that mm-hmm. is so fascinating and I can make it you can you can make it an argument in philosophy of mind and say like if that's possible then you know we're not uh, physicalists or or something like that and maybe like back uh backfill it or or, or back propagate it in order to make it part of uh eudaimonia mm-hmm. but i'm like man sometimes i just i love the just pure speculation i wonder mm-hmm. um is there still a place for that just raw like let's just sit in the armchair and just let it rip on philosophy like how, how does that fit into uh human flourishing Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is very, very special. I have with me Dr. Aaron Preston. He's coming back to talk about the philosophy of philosophy, metaphilosophy, whether or not that's an appropriate term. We'll see. I'm really excited to do it again. I love philosophy. I love trying to figure it out. And what's really cool is trying to figure out philosophy is actually a part of philosophy, which is great. So Aaron is a really cool guy. He's really well-versed in the history of analytic philosophy, um, but also, I would say, an opponent of that narrow conception. So I'll let him talk uh, in his own words, therefore. I'm really excited. Before we jump in, though, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen over on Patreon and on YouTube members. If you guys like this podcast, if you want to see me continue to be able to bring you episodes like this, please consider becoming a Patreon patron or a YouTube member. You can join for as little as $3 a month, uh, all the way up to a lot more than that. Every, every little bit helps, every little bit counts, and you get uh, perks at just about every level. So please check the description for the link to Patreon. If you're watching on YouTube, you can click the join button and see some options. That would be awesome. I would love to uh, to continue doing this. I'd love to do this as a career. So uh, if you guys like the podcast, help me make it happen. Help me feed my puppies. You know, there's a uh, pulling on the heartstrings a little bit. All right. Well, that's probably enough. Uh, for those on Facebook, we do have a Facebook group called Parker's Pensies Pensiers. Uh, the link should be in the description wherever you're getting this, but if not, just go find it on Facebook. Um, so that's a really cool group with a lot of my guests. Uh, we're in there having cool conversations right now, mostly about artificial intelligence, but, uh, there's other cool stuff that we talk about. So find us there. Um, check the description for more links. Let's stop and let's get into the philosophy of philosophy. Aaron, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, man. You bet Parker. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is really, really fun. Um, I'm in the process of trying to figure out what philosophy is. And I don't know if I'll ever get to like a final stopping point, but I've been asking analytic philosophers, continental philosophers, um, what I'm calling historical minded philosophers, uh, phenomenologists. Uh, if you've got a particular stripe of philosophy, I want to know what philosophy is from you. Um, Aaron, how, how can people think of you? What, what what kind of philosopher do you think of yourself? Do you fit in a, in a nice little box? Well, I, I like the label that you just threw out, uh, historically minded philosopher. Okay. I like that. Um, uh, otherwise, um, I don't know, I hard, I suppose hard to categorize. Yeah. Um, I am analytically trained, uh, but as you mentioned, I'm, I'm sort of a critic of analytic philosophy. Uh, I'm 
I suppose, mostly a historian of, of philosophy, but I've focused mostly on the history of analytic philosophy. So that's very recent history. But one of the things I like to do is think about the analytic tradition in um, sort of contrast with, with earlier uh, forms and modes of philosophizing and think about the similarities and differences and um, then use that as a sort of framework for you about for evaluation. Yeah. To what, what, it, what are the virtues of analytic philosophy? What are the vices of analytic philosophy? Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And, and I, I love that approach because usually um, when someone is focused on the history of philosophy, it's usually, let's talk about Plato. And Plato is awesome. But you're saying, no, we're, let's talk about the history of analytic philosophy. It's currently happening, but it, it's not that far uh, 1900s. So um, that's, really, that's really fascinating. We've talked about it, I'm sure, on the last time you came on. That was a long time ago. Um, How did you get interested in studying the history of analytic philosophy? Well, as you might recall, I was a student of Dallas Willard's at the University of Southern California. Uh, I studied with him both as an undergraduate and as a graduate student. And um, as an undergraduate, uh, I was a double major in classics and philosophy. And, you know, when you're a double major, you sort of split your time among two disciplines. And usually you end up taking uh, uh, not as many courses in, in either one as you would have if, if one or the other was, was just your single major. Uh, so that was true of me. Um, I took fewer philosophy courses than I would have if I were just a straight up philosophy major. And it turned out that I took the majority of my courses with, uh, well, with Dallas primarily, but also other folks who were more um, historically minded, more sort of traditional in their philosophical orientation. This is in the decade before USC's department became, uh, shall we say, lighterific, right? Before it before it really, it already was thinking of itself as an analytic department, but before it was really a sort of creme de la creme uh, analytic department, right? Mm. So you had a, a lot of folks there, kind of pluralistic in a certain way, a lot of folks there who didn't fit the analytic mold. And as an under, undergrad, I, I took um, most of my courses with these folks uh, just uh, as a matter of accident more than anything else, uh, folks I ended up taking courses with. Um, when I returned to USC as a graduate student uh, a little later on, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, um, I started running into more professors who um, were more self-consciously analytic in the hmm. and, and who worked more in the what we think of as the core areas of analytic philosophy. And I was immediately uh, struck by the difference um, in approach to the subject matter and pedagogy. Um, and some of it I found quite puzzling um, and, and even to the point of being problematic. And I wanted to sort of understand why these folks were doing philosophy in a way that was so different from Willard and the other more traditional and historically philosophers that I had uh, encountered as an undergraduate. Um, and so that's how I got interested in analytic philosophy, um, first in a metaphilosophical sort of way. It's like, you know, why, why are they approaching a subject in this way? What, how are they understanding philosophy? Um, that, that leads them to approach it in this way. Uh, I didn't get many satisfactory answers to those kinds of questions. And so I did what comes naturally to me, which is I started investigating analytic philosophy historically. Maybe if I can figure out why this movement or school or tradition originated, uh, I'll understand why they approach philosophy the way they do. So that's how I got into the history of analytic philosophy and sort of turned into my dissertation and then to an ongoing uh, decades long research project at this point. Yeah. 
No, that's that's awesome. So I, I listened back to our first episode, uh, maybe two months ago, mm. and and you'd mentioned how looking back in the history it helped you get a better grasp on the content. And so I, I I've been learning uh, about artificial intelligence and the philosophy of artificial intelligence. And so I, I remembered you saying that, and I was like, well, let me go back and see if I can understand this better by looking at the history. And it totally helped, man. It's, it's so awesome. awesome. So it's super helpful. So I, I, your advice has uh, continued to pay off for me. Which is super. Really cool. Yeah. Um, Aaron, I, I wonder, well, real quick, uh, some people are going to be interested in this, not everyone, but how would you classify Willard? Because I think generally when you think about him and you think about who he studied and the phenomenologist, people are going, yeah, he's a phenomenologist, but I'm not sure if that's right or not. Um, how, how would you characterize Willard? Was, was he just a, a philosopher simplicator or was he a, particularly a phenomenologist? How would you categorize him if you can? Yeah, I, I mean, he, he was a phenomenologist, but he was not only a phenomenologist. Um, it's kind of funny. One, one time he said, um, I'm not postmodern, I'm pre-modern. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and and I think what he meant by that, um, well, some of the themes that we'll touch on, uh, I'm sure, along the way today, as we talk about older conceptions of philosophy and and what its task was and, and how it should be practiced, uh, will help to il illuminate what he may have meant by that. But one of the things he meant by that was, you know, he, he took a traditional sort of um, metaphysics first view uh, or ontology first view uh, of philosophy. Um, Metaphysics is first philosophy, and and you do your fundamental, um, your fundamental work in terms of laying out what you think exists and the the natures of things and the fundamental attributes that characterize things you're interested in, and you sort of work up from there. Uh, he thought phenomenology was um, a very useful uh, approach in trying to accomplish that traditional philosophical task of mm. that you are doing your ontology responsibly, unless you were. Um, approaching it through uh, the use of a rigorous phenomenal phenomenological analysis, right? Yeah. So the motto of the early phenomenological movement to the things themselves well, was also Willard's. It's like hmm. you straight to the thing itself and you start to um, analyze it phenomenologically and, and try to get a hold of its essential properties and sort of work up from there. Yeah. That's, that's super helpful. Um, so, so that one's for free, folks, for the uh, to Willard fans out there. Um, we've used the word a few times already. Um, what What is philosophy? Just a real softball question, you know, super easy to answer. Uh, right. <laughs> what is this thing? Right. Well, you know, I I um, remember you you talking about this in one of your previous con uh, uh, podcasts with uh, I think Mike Humor um, yeah. and. Uh, a lot of really interesting things were said, but I remember you uh, sort of struggling, both of you, uh, to talk about uh, this idea of, well, the word means love of wisdom. And, you know, how is that represented in what we actually do as philosophers? Right. And I, I think it's very difficult to make that connection if you are um, thinking of philosophy primarily in terms of what we do today in the professionalized academic discipline uh, that we call philosophy. Yeah. You know, thinking about philosophy as love of wisdom just doesn't make a whole lot of sense in connection with philosophy as practiced today. But if you go back to the uh, to the origins, I think it makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that uh, philosophy, as understood and practiced by folks like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and others down through the ages, um, 
sort of cast it as a, a cognitive and behavioral endeavor to provide wisdom for living the right kind of life. Hmm. And this ultimately involves, well, now how do all of these other abstruse areas of philosophical inquiry uh, come out of that, you know, metaphysics and epistemology and so on and so forth. Well, these are, these are things that you've got to wrangle with when you're trying to figure out how to live life the right way. Mm. Um, I've introduced a, a concept that I call metaphilosophical eudaimonism. And this is basically the, the idea that um, philosophy is ultimately about human flourishing. That human flourishing in that distinctive Greek sense associated with the term eudaimonia, where it's not just, you know, happiness. Um, it involves sort of objective standards of well-being and for the human being that includes a distinctive moral dimension. So being a good person is part of human flourishing. Um, because we are intellectual beings, because we are the rational animal, reasoning is also going to be part of our flourishing. So mm. it turns out that on this view, philosophizing itself is partially constitutive of human flourishing. But philosophizing as a distinct sort of cognitive activity is ultimately oriented toward better understanding our flourishing and the steps we can take to attain, achieve, enhance our flourishing. And that I think is always going to involve you in trying to understand your relationship as a human being to the larger orders you inhabit from, you know, your immediate social environment up to the cosmos level of the cosmos. How do I fit in? How do we as a species fit in? And that gets you into pretty much all of the, um, the, the other areas that we think of as distinctive philosophical areas, metaphysics, epistemology, yeah. and so forth. Yeah. I, um, uh, I just took a, a class with Paul Gould at, at Palm Beach Atlantic and it was, uh, it was on public philosophy and a lot, he, was, he kept hammering this point and a lot of the authors that you cite in the, the two papers that you sent me, we, we read them and uh, it, was, it was really good. I, I'm nervous. I'm just being honest here. I'm nervous about losing the speculative philosophy that I love so much because mm -hmm. it's like, it's Gedanken or whatever the German word is for it. It's, it's too speculative. I, I love going in on like, hey, what if my um, inverted qualia type stuff where it's like, mm -hmm. what if this highlighter looks like it's yellow to me? but it's, you know, it's your violet. Like that mm -hmm. is so fascinating. And I can make it, you can, you can make it an argument in philosophy of mind and say like, if that's possible, then, you know, we're not uh, physicalists or, or something like that. And maybe like back, uh, backfill it or, or, or back propagate it in order to make it part of uh, eudaimonia. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, man, sometimes I just, I love the just pure speculation. I wonder, mm -hmm. um, is there still a place for that just raw, like, Let's just sit in the armchair and just let it rip on philosophy. Like, how, how does that fit into uh, human flourishing? Well, sure. And uh, so I think the trick is to see that there is a place for it, but the place for it is as part of a larger whole, right? I, I suppose um, that we would probably agree uh, that, that someone who devoted, well, let's just say it's possible to devote too much time to that sort of thing. Okay. And a, a person who devoted, um, so much time and energy to that, that they neglected other important goods of human life. I'm not saying there wouldn't be something admirable by that person, but there would also be something deficient. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. And, and so, so absolutely, there can be a, a place for, you know, pure speculation. Again, philosophizing is part of human flourishing. And so taking time just to engage in these speculative endeavors without knowing whether or not there's going to be some sort of, um, you know, further outcome for human flourishing beyond the enjoyment that you mm. take in the exercise of your faculties itself. Uh, that's fine. That's mm. fine. Okay. Um, but that's got to be part of a, of a balanced, holistic endeavor to live the right kind of life. It seems to me. Yeah. Okay. No, that, that's really, really helpful. Um, yeah. And, and I, I noticed, um, you had this great line in, in one of the papers, uh, about, about theory, uh, the, the theoretical and the practical, and now they need to go hand in hand. Um, theory production for the sake of theory production isn't enough. You also need to, uh, shape one's character in light of the theory being produced. That's I thought right. that was, I thought that was really helpful. Um, and it is kind of sad when I read your stuff and I go back and think, oh no, um, has, has most of philosophy like lost its way today? And it's a little bit scary because you'd make me like step back out of just being in it and say, oh no, like most of the analytic folks I, I talked to today, they're like, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're the ethics professor is a good person. It, it doesn't matter. Maybe they need to be a good person just in virtue of being a person. Okay. That's cool. But I would think if you're, if you're an ethicist, you ought to be more ethical than the average person. Um, I'm not sure would, 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 um, meta philosophical eudynamism, uh, predict that, or would it, uh, would it say that the ethics prof ought to be good in virtue of being an ethics prof? Well, well I think one of the things that, uh, metaphilosophical eudaimonism might, um, might say is that, well, we need to stop sort of pigeonholing people as, as ethics profs for the oh, okay. of subspecializations that, um, you know, I, I I, I want to sort of associate that with analytic philosophy, but there's a question as to, you know, whether that is the fault of analytic philosophy or the fault of the, um, the context in which analytic philosophy finds itself, namely the context of the contemporary Western university, where all of our disciplines have become professionalized in a certain sort of, now, I think there was a, in the process leading to this state of affairs, um, there's a sort of symbiosis between, uh, the changes at the institutional level the American university, let's say, and, um, and the changes in the, the discipline of philosophy. I think analytic philosophy was the, uh, species of philosophy that, that tailored itself to that institutional context most completely. And that's one of the reasons why it proved to be dominant ultimately. Hmm. Um, but I, I would step back and say, well, look, it's not just the ethics professor. It's the philosopher qua philosopher who ought to be a better person, not than other people necessarily, but than than he or she otherwise would have been without being a philosopher, right? If, if the, if the knowledge, wisdom, understanding that you are acquiring as a philosopher is not enabling you to become a better person than you otherwise would have been, then philosophy is not doing its job in your life or you're mm. not allowing philosophy to do its job. Yeah, that's really helpful. I'm, I, I'm, I'm torn in half right now in my, in my mind, because I'm, I'm with you that it's like, man, I, 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 I admire philosophers who have a wide breadth, breadth of, of areas that they write in, that they publish in, that they write, you know, and, and when they do it publicly and, uh, for peer facing folks, I think that's awesome. 
I wonder about the the um the the need for specialization in the academy. Like, if someone's an epistemologist, there's a lot of stuff that they have to read in order to be cutting edge in that area, and it's gonna that's gonna require a lot more time from them, and so they may not be able to keep up with the grounding stuff and the metaphysics that's going on and the the new discoveries or whatever in the history of philosophy. What what do you make of that? That like the specialization and the time commitment, like forcing itself onto people to make them specialists. Right. Well, um, I want to say that this is, uh, ultimately, I think it's a sort of irresolvable difficulty. Okay. We are just, we, we are inevitably, all yeah. of us who are, who are trying to make sense of things in an intellectually responsible way, we're going to be torn between these, these sort of two poles, one, you know, the pole of specialization and the other pole of, you know, say being a, a generalist or, or being able to, to pull your specialized knowledge back into the realm of, you know, ordinary human life and, and thinking about what that means for how we might live. Right. Another way of putting the point is asking yourself why it matters. Why does it matter that we get this detailed in our epistemological inquiries. Mm. And I think one of the things that a lot of people are inclined to say about a lot of analytic philosophy is that, well, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant, right? Some of these, these abstract debates we get into maybe don't matter as much as we think they do. Yeah. And I've, I, again, I don't mean that to be a blanket condemnation of going down rabbit holes because right. there's a sense in which you might find useful things down there and sharpening your, your concepts and your conceptual abilities is I think, um, all else being equal, a good thing. And, and you can't do that without getting down into the details uh, to a certain degree. But my, my point is that you always have to sort of back up from that and ask yourself, is this still worth it? Given the, the overall sort of central aims of human life, Yeah. that does this matter enough? to devote this much time and attention to it at this level of detail. What kind of use is that going to be for me, for other people? What can I do for my community? What can I do for my students with this information? Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's good, man. That's, that's really helpful. I wonder, um, so, so you'd mentioned that, yeah, it, it, if, if we go with love of wisdom, it doesn't look like it actually does capture a whole lot of what's going on today. Um, what, what is, what is wisdom? So, um, I'm inclined to think that, that wisdom, um, is, well, it, it's sort of, you can look at this cognitively, right. Yeah. In terms of a, a body of wisdom that could be passed down, it would be something like a, a kind of knowledge or understanding. And we can talk about the difference between knowledge and understanding. Mm -hmm. Um, but a kind of knowledge or understanding of a way of cognitively representing uh, truths about the world that are especially relevant to right living. Mm. Right. So wisdom has to do with living life in the right way. Yeah. And it definitely is, is in the vicinity of knowledge. Right. Uh, but then there's also a sort of dispositional element to wisdom. Um, and so when, when Willard would gloss wisdom, he'd always say wisdom is the disposition to act in accordance with knowledge. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, right. that's really helpful. And I would just, I would just add to that. Yes, but especially knowledge pertaining to how to live life the right way. Hmm. 
Yeah. So th- those those types of definitions are really exciting for me because it, it pulls back in the idea of being like a philosophical sage, of being mm-hmm. someone who who does have wise statements, who does have gnomic statements, who can give a pithy answer, mm-hmm. um, and and who can who know who can um, adjudicate like what the questioner is asking and give them an appropriate response. You know, some are going to be confounded, some are going to be more straightforward, some are going to be a riddle. I love that idea of, you know, the sage. I want to be that person. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, an idea of a philosopher being that person gets me so excited. Yeah. Um so we got we got wisdom. I actually I love the distinction between wisdom, knowledge and understanding and I got that my dad would always tell me to pray for that when I was a kid. He would, no. he'd, he'd read Proverbs every day and encourage us to read Psalms or Proverbs every day. And he'd say, Hey, you know, Solomon asked for this. So you should ask for wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. So I, I continually pray that every day. And then I thought, you know, what the heck is that? What, what, what are those things? And I, in my head, I would, I would think of, um, wisdom is like the proper application of knowledge. Maybe you know, I, I like the way Willard put it. Um, understanding in my head, I'm like, I can know that E equals MC squared. Um, maybe even if I if I knew how to apply it in the right situation, I could I could under I could uh, be wise with that knowledge. But I I wouldn't understand it unless I knew what the variables stood for and how they interact with a broader uh, breadth of of knowledge. So that's that's kind of my loose definition. How do you understand? How how do you think of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding? Right. So um, you know, I, here I'm, I sort of draw on contemporary work by a number of virtue epistemologists who have tried to rehabilitate uh, wisdom and understanding as valuable uh, cognitive states or, or cognitive achievements um, that are distinct from knowledge. Uh, you, you read folks like, say, Linda Zagzebski or uh, John Quanvig, um, who have written on understanding uh, and some of these other neglected um, valuable cognitive states uh, that traditionally have been valued within philosophy, but, you know, since the turn of the 20th century and the rise of, of analytic philosophy uh, have been eclipsed in favor of knowledge straight up. So, you know, if knowledge is justified true belief or justified true belief plus something else, well, you know, what, what's wisdom, what then is understanding? Um, and I think it's ultimately difficult to, um, to completely disentangle uh, wisdom and understanding from knowledge, there are going to be some similarities there. Both involve a true or veridical or accurate grasp of some region of reality. And I think wisdom, again, has more to do with uh, the, the parts of reality or the truths that have to do with uh, living life rightly. Understanding uh, what, what the virtue epistemologists who work on understanding um, pretty much agree upon is, is that understanding has to do with a uh, grasp of how the, the parts of complex wholes stand in relation to one another and interact with one another so as to um, sort of make the complex whole work as it does. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's some debate about whether understanding always has to consist in propositional uh, knowledge or representation or not. Um, but the idea that, you know, when you're thinking about knowledge, uh, we usually just think about single propositions in isolation. Right? Do I know that X or that P right. or whatever, right? Like, well, with understanding, it's a lot more complicated than that. Hmm. It's, it's understanding how things are interrelated with one another in complex ways. 
And it's especially associated with um, the ability to explain. Yeah, yeah that's good. Explain. So uh, I actually think, and there are some folks who have argued that, that it's, that say, episteme in, uh, in Greek, in, the, in philosophical, in ancient philosophical context, is better translated as understanding than mm. as knowledge, because that seems to be, in many cases, the sorts of things that, that um, Plato and, and Aristotle uh, were, were aiming for cognitively, was you know, how, do, how do the parts of complex wholes fall together? in such a way that I can understand and explain how the whole works or perhaps even ought to work. Yeah. Think about moral knowledge for Plato consists largely in a knowledge of the interrelation of the parts of the human soul and mm-hmm. you know, the, the function that the human being must have in virtue of having those parts configured in the way they are. And then the virtues that you need to function well in virtue of being the kind of thing that you are, right? Yeah. Um, I'd never thought of that being a, a myriological type thing mm-hmm. about parts and holes. That's really cool, man. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, a lot of things are clicking in my head right now. So that's, cool. yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. Um, did you, did I, did I break up your, your thought pattern there? Did, did you? No, I more or less reached the end. You can redirect me. <laughs> that's good. Awesome. Um, okay. So. I'm wondering about characterizing um, continental philosophy. So we, we, we have some, I mean, we did a whole episode on analytic philosophy and, and you've written a lot on that. Um, do you, do you think that continental philosophy is um, characterizable? It, you know, is, is it actually, um, is it as well-defined, I guess, maybe you don't think analytic philosophy is super well-defined, but is it, as tightly, uh, can you draw a circle around continental philosophy in the same way you could around analytic? I, I think, um, I think no. Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, continental philosophy is more of what we might call an umbrella term than analytic philosophy historically has been. Although nowadays analytic, the term analytic philosophy is coming to be more and more of an umbrella term as well as. Well, one of the ways we put this is to say that, that analytic philosophy is becoming more pluralistic. Mm. So, well, uh, it certainly is. Uh, we are allowing more room under the, under the banner of analytic philosophy for, uh, for approaches that traditionally have been excluded and so forth. So, you know, it's become more pluralistic in that sense. But then you ask the question of what unites everything that falls under the heading analytic philosophy. And it's very difficult to say. Uh, what, what that might be, if anything. And, and consequently, uh, I, I do think that, um, it's more of an umbrella term today than, than labeling a distinctive, uh, sort of school of thought, but continental philosophy from the beginning has just been a, a label of convenience to capture uh, hmm. this range of thinkers that maybe have a certain kind of family resemblance, or maybe have a kind of historical relation of, of influence to one another. Uh, there's definitely something worth calling, uh, the continental tradition, um, but talking about the unity of that tradition is, is going to get dicey. Yeah. That's almost always the case when you're talking about the unity of, of philosophical tradition. A hundred percent. Yeah. People will talk about the rationalists and mm-hmm. it's like, well, you know, uh, they're a little bit different. Leibniz is going to be a lot different than Descartes. You know, they're, they're going to have some, some similar views, but then Spinoza and it's like, why are you, oh, cause they don't like the empiricists, I guess. Mm-hmm. So that, that might unify them, but 
you know, and Wolf and like these guys are different folks. Right. Um, and and it's just been it was super easy when I was learning philosophy initially to be like, here's the empiricist and here's the rationalist. And then you start to actually read them in their own words. And you're like, dude, I don't, I don't see it, right. man. This is really tough here. Right. Yeah. Carving up the history of, of philosophy or, or even just the contemporary sort of sociological landscape of philosophy. Um, it's, it's always open to multiple uh, different models, let's say, yeah. right. It's almost always going to be based on similarities of thought. Um, and or method, but then, you know, the method itself presumably is grounded in some philosophical thought about how we ought to be proceeding as philosophers. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there are going to be similarities of, of thought, uh, that, that ground these, um, groupings, but which similarities we pick out as being the important ones uh, as being the, you know, the poles around which we want to organize various groups of philosophers that itself, um, is, is an interesting dimension of the history of philosophy. How yeah. have we, how have we understood the ideational and sociological landscape of philosophy as it's unfolded over time? Who belongs with whom? Who is opposed yeah. to whom? And so on. Yeah. So a follow up on that. Um, who gets to, who gets to be called a philosopher? Who gets to call themselves a philosopher? That's a tough one. And, you know, I, I, this is the sort of question where I don't want to... People should rightly feel like shrinking back in the face of this and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not the boss. Yeah, right. um, but, but I do think that um, if we're going to approach this matter, you know, with intellectual seriousness, that there has to be some connection to the, um, the, the Western philosophical tradition hmm. that originally bore the name philosophy. Uh, I, I take a sort of, you might call it an originalist approach to um, understanding these important terms. So, you know, what is philosophy? What is it to be a philosopher? Well, you know, the label first belonged to this tradition that developed in, say, ancient Greece, right? That's where the word itself comes from. And now um, we, can, we can identify perhaps um, similar enough instances of human activity in other cultures where they might, it might be worth calling them philosophy, right? Yeah. What they're doing over in China or in India, right? Is that similar enough to what was going on in ancient Greece to warrant calling it philosophy as well? Um, you know, we can have debates about that, but, but I'm open to that. And then of course, across Western history, uh, people who are, uh, furthering the project, part of the tradition, carrying it on, uh, and folks who are, uh, you have this weird phenomenon of, of uh, what some have called anti-philosophy philosophers. Yeah. Um, and so, well, are they part of the tradition or are they not? <laughs> Certainly in dialogue with, uh, with folks who are philosophers in, in an unqualified sense, but, um, you know, are they philosophers? Are they using the same methods? Are they trying to reshape philosophy by using philosophy? Doesn't that bring them back into the fold? You know, these are deep questions and I don't know exactly how to draw the lines, but I do want to insist that there must be some sort of significant connection to the paradigm case of philosophy in its original setting. And that's ancient Greece. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I probably shouldn't care about that question as much, but I, I love philosophy. Um, I studied theology. I have a couple of degrees in that. And, and I like to you know think of myself as a theologian, but I, I just, I have such a admiration for philosophy and for the tradition and for what philosophers do. And so I'm like, oh no, you don't get, 
you're not a philosopher. Like when somebody, when there's a public figure who says, I'm a philosopher and they have no formal training at all. Mm-hmm. I'm like, man, I don't want to count you. And maybe that's just me being a jerk, but there's this one podcaster and he's just, he's just a, he's a comedian. It's not, mm-hmm. not Joe Rogan. It's another dude. I don't want to say his name, but you know, in his intro, he says like warrior philosopher. And I'm like, dude, this is so cringy and embarrassing that you're calling yourself these things. Right. Especially when you don't have any formal training, just because you talk to people doesn't mean you're a philosopher. But then I'm thinking, you know, is Jordan Peterson a philosopher? A lot of people are like, yeah, he's, he's, he's uh, one of the greatest philosophers of our time. And well, mm-hmm. he's a psychologist. And mm-hmm. I guess he's talking with, with Jung and stuff. And he mentions philosophers sometimes. Well, um, again, you're not the arbiter or anything, but I am putting you on the spot because you are the guest here. Do you, do you, would you consider Jordan Peterson to be a philosopher? In a sense, yes. Okay. Um, you know, I, we'd want to make some distinctions, I think, just for the sake of clarity. Yeah. And, and say, um, well, uh, you know, you've got philosophers in the sense of academic philosophers, and that usually yeah. presupposes a certain kind of training. But even there, pinning that down is going to be difficult because to be an analytically trained philosopher is different from being a philosopher trained in the continental tradition, right? You're not going to have the same um, approach to your, to your subject matter. And to some extent, subject matter may be different, yeah. different foci. Um, so, uh, but I would want to make a distinction say, well, look, you've got academically trained philosophers, um, and, and, uh, folks who, you know, work in universities as philosophy professors and, uh, or there as philosophy students. And, you know, that, that picture of what it means to be a philosopher deserves uh, a certain kind of uh, paradigmatic status in our minds. Yeah. But as we've discussed, um, there are certain respects in which contemporary philosophy uh, in the analytic tradition and in other traditions has departed from the great tradition in philosophy. And I think someone like Jordan Peterson actually um, comes closer to uh, the paradigm of being a philosopher on a more traditional view of what it meant to be a philosopher than being a, say, you know, top shelf analytic philosopher does today, you know, being a, someone who, who's got, um, you know, a very, very deep and exacting knowledge of a, of a subspecialty within the broader field. And one of the things that, that Peterson does really well, I think, is, is he serves this traditional aim of philosophy on the eudaimonistic view, you know, if we think about, uh, metaphilosophical eudaimonism as taking philosophy, um, in the direction of trying to achieve knowledge that is useful for, for living. So trying to achieve wisdom, that sort of yeah. wisdom knowledge, and then, uh, employing it yeah, in a, in a way that actually leads you toward flourishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peterson is doing that work for people yeah, and he's doing it powerfully. And I don't think I can point to a single academic philosopher, um, who in his or her role as a philosopher is, is doing an equally good job. Mm. Yeah. So I'm, I'm with you on that. And so I have, I have uh, certain folks, I have like a, uh, I don't want to say chart the logical space. Cause that that's a little bit played out, but I have this like map in my head of, of public intellectuals who I'm, I'm thinking about, and I'm like, is this person a philosopher or not? And um, you know, I know some folks will say, who cares? And it's like, mm-hmm. well, I, I care. Cause I, I want to figure out what a philosopher is. So I, I have Jordan Peterson where I'm like, yeah, um, accidentally, you know, I, I think he, he accidentally filled this role. I think, uh, someone who would be on par that was philosophically trained might be like a Roger Scruton 
people mm-hmm. looked to and said, what do you think about this? What do you think about politics? How should we be thinking about this? And, and a lot of practical life stuff. I thought he did a great job. Um, yeah. Then I think of, I'm not sure, are you familiar with like Lex Friedman? He's got a really uh, popular podcast. I don't know Lex Friedman. Yeah, so he's got a great podcast. I recommend it for folks, but um, he uh, was trained in artificial intelligence, but he has a lot of uh, famous people on and famous intellectuals on. But he always asks them, you know, do you have any advice for for young students? Do you have any advice for high schoolers? Mm -hmm. Um, What's the role that love plays in your theorizing? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what does it mean to to live a good life? And it's just like, dang, dude, you're just you're just literally ripping off the old questions and putting mm-hmm. it in that. And by doing so, you're doing more benefit to society than a lot of other folks who don't do that. Right. Yeah. But then then I, I slip into it's like a sliding scale, and I'm like, well, does that mean like Joe Rogan counts as a philosopher? I don't want to count Rogan. You know, I've I've benefited from his podcast a lot, but like mm-hmm. I don't think that he is but why do i think that you know and and so if i could put you back on the spot what, what do you think about rogan is, is he a philosopher um i i would be inclined to say no okay uh, you know i any, anyone can ask philosophical questions yeah merely asking those questions i i don't think qualifies you as a philosopher okay that's helpful um, uh, perhaps unless that's the beginning of something yeah, then you can sort of retro retrospectively say, well, that's when I first became a philosopher and started asking these questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think there has to be a, a sustained effort at uh, producing answers to those questions mm-hmm. um, in a way that that uh, employs reason, employs yeah. you know human reason to a to a large ex- and deep extent. Um, and if you're not doing that, you're you're not really being a philosopher. Right? Yeah. So, um, you, you can ask philosophical questions. You can even pose answers. But remember, I mean, early on, we've got this conflict between the sophists and those who we think of as being, you know, real philosophers. And there's a debate about whether the sophists are part of the philosophical tradition. Yeah, are they right. anti-philosophy philosophers or are they not? I'm inclined to think they're not. They're just, uh, mm. you know, uh, opportunistic hacks for the most part. Yeah. True. Uh, Perhaps some of them were genuinely intrigued by what the philosophers were doing, um, but ultimately uh, they they weren't as interested in coming up with um, uh, a worldview that would fuel um, human flourishing yeah. as they were um, sort of making a name for themselves and making a profit for themselves and things like that. And, um, you know, uh, with with some of these say podcasters or public intellectuals um, who are maybe asking the right questions, but not employing the right methods and trying to answer them. Yeah. Um, and I'd say they're, they're more sort of in the vicinity of, of sophists than okay. philosophers. And uh, I wouldn't want to say that, that Rogan himself was a, a philosopher or, or sorry, was a sophist. Um, may, maybe, you know, he's on the path to becoming a, a baby philosopher or something like that. He asks yeah. all the right questions. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. I'm glad you brought back in the, the sophist. That's, that's a helpful clarification. Yeah. I've always thought, I've always thought like, who are the modern day, uh, sophists? And, I, um, in my mind, the thing that always pops up is like, uh, the lobbyists mm-hmm. and sorry for the lobbyists who are listening, but there's a type of lobbyist like, uh, in thank you for smoking where he's, he's a, he's a lobbyist for the tobacco, big tobacco. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, he something happens it's a, it's a pretty good movie and then he switches up and he, now he's a lobbyist for the cell phone companies saying uh you know they they don't cause they don't cause cancer 
he's a he's a good debater. He's good at rhetoric, but he's mm-hmm. just to the highest bidder. Right. So there's it's not uh, there's nothing driving him except money. And he's like, yeah, you right. superficially look the same because you can use similar tools, but your mm-hmm. motives are completely different. Right. I think I think that's right. Lobbyists are a good example of uh, sophists, and um, I I also frankly think that uh, a lot of the folks pushing um, contemporary uh, what we might call critical social justice ideology, the diversity, mm-hmm. equity, and inclusion crowd, you see a lot of uh, sophistry yeah. uh, in in the classical sense going on there in terms of playing fast and loose with terms, giving them new definitions. Uh, mm-hmm. The psychologist Nick Haslam and his team of researchers has called this concept creep. It's an ideologically motivated expansion and extension of the meanings and applications of harm-related concepts. Uh, yeah. And uh, I think that this is a, a, a pretty nefarious application of, of old-school uh, you know, sophism, as it were. Yeah. Um, so, Aaron, how do we... Well, oh shoot, there's so many questions to 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 dive into. Uh, before before I go any further, you've said some interesting stuff about the modern university, especially American university. And uh, thinking back on the historical view, there were schools, and you know, to be a philosopher was to fo- follow a philosopher. It looked like like you were at least part or associated with, or you were trained by. In jujitsu, we have this a little bit with like the Gracie family. There's like the Gracie, and and everyone kind of traces their roots back to them, and then you can actually trace that back to Japan. And so you don't, everyone kind of can trace it back. And I, I, that's at least a picture that I have of the ancient schools where they were all coming from certain figures. And, and to be part of that was to be part of this. Uh, it was a lifestyle too. You, you dressed a certain way. I think they all had the similar haircut. You could even say what robe they were wearing. Was it like a palace or whatever? And their arms just looked like this. Um, what do you think? Like if you could be dictator of, if you could be the philosopher king of, of the modern university, would you go back to the school? Should, should we have like a, a figure that people follow? What would you do? What would you, how would you set it up? No, I, I don't find that model particularly attractive. I think that it's natural for that uh, sort of thing to develop to a certain extent. I mean, I, I just am a student of Dallas Willard and I always will be, right? And folks who studied with Plantinga, they are students of Plantinga and always will be. Um, but it's, it's very easy for, for that way of thinking of things to turn into a sort of, you know, cult of personality. Yeah. And I think that's very much an anti-philosophical way of, of going about living your life. You, you don't want to get involved with, with cult of personality phenomenon. Yeah. Um, so there's gotta be some sort of fine lines on the one hand, you know, um, real life involves interpersonal connections and then there are people who are our mentors and, you know, we, uh, we strive to pass on traditions, uh, and, and, and so on and so forth, but that doesn't have to be uh, a sort of all consuming, you know, uh, down to your haircut and your robe and, <laughs> and uh, you know, ed- swearing fealty to, uh, you know, your, your philosophical mentor or whatever, right? right? That, that, that's too much. Uh, but I, but I do think the important thing uh, about the model of ancient philosophy is that these folks were trying to come up with wisdom for living. And that endeavor did lead to some abstruse philosophical speculation. And that becomes part of it. And, and it, it turns out that you can't really, I think, develop a, a model for living a flourishing human life without engaging in some of that speculative mm-hmm. thinking that you love so much. I think that's, that's probably necessary. Now, notice that I'm not saying you can't live a good life without that. I'm saying you can't develop a model for living a good life. Yeah. Right? 
Um, but the idea is that the model is supposed to be helpful because not everyone falls naturally into living a good human. There are lots of challenges to this. Yeah. And, um, and consequently philosophy is supposed to be useful and sort of overcoming barriers, uh, and, and again, understanding what is our nature? What does it mean for a human being to flourish? What virtues do I need to be excellent as a human being? Yeah. How do I pursue that fitting into my social context, into the natural world, into the cosmos as a whole, into the supernatural dimensions of the cosmos, right? If there are any, right? Knowing something about God and how you relate to him yeah. would end up being quite important if there's a God and we're supposed to be relating to him in a particular sort of way, right? right? So um, you're, you're just not going to have an adequate model of, of human flourishing if you don't address all of these different dimensions of human flourishing. And of course that requires you to do some philosophical speculation. Yeah. What really is the nature of the mind? Do we have a soul? Is there a God? Yeah. I love that. And, uh, I used to be, I used to be a little bit self-conscious about being uh, a philosopher of religion. Well, mm. partially because in public they're like, okay, well, what, you know, tell me about Zen Buddhism. I'm like, no, that's comparative religion. Um, mm -hmm. no, this has to do, this is a little bit different. Um, though I've studied that, but that was actually my theology degree. So, um, I used to be a little bit, uh, yeah, a little bit embarrassed by that, to be honest. And then I started doing more philosophy of religion and realized like philosophy of religion, one is super duper important because if God exists, that changes everything. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a big question that everyone has always talked about in philosophy. So that's a little bit of a, uh, you know, that's huge. And then also, uh, it's philosophy on hard mode because you have to, does God exist? Well, how do you know? And what so you're, you're into epistemology, metaphysics, you know, mm -hmm. ontology, philosophy of mind, like, you right. know, all, all philosophy of physics and it's, it's all connected. Um, and then on top of that, if you are a religious believer yourself, you have certain commitments that you have where you have to navigate and say, well, do I really believe this or not? And how am I going to, how am I going to, uh, use different sources, you know, uh, you know, revelation and reason. And so I've come full circle or I've, maybe 180 and I'm trying not to tip back over mm -hmm. saying like, yeah, philosophy of religion is awesome. And it's philosophy on hard mode. And I'm, I'm um, I do want to find, I, I like labels, man. It, it's, mm -hmm. I, it's really unnerving for me to not be able to like try and find myself in a certain, under a certain label. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't even, that's why I'm like analytic philosophy continental. I need to have a name so I can grasp some stuff and things aren't that, that easy. Well, that, that's fine. I, I think that I, I'm also a fan of labels um, they, they helped, they help us to orient ourselves and to, yeah. you know, figure out where we stand and what we're doing and all of that. Uh, but I think, you know, for me, um, the, the trick is to understand that these, these labels or these, let's say categories, um, they've got fairly clear central points, but they rarely have clear boundaries. Yeah, that's good. So, you know, when you say I'm a philosopher of religion. That that's informative. That gives people a sense of who you are and what you do, uh, vocally, but then out toward the periphery, it's like, well, how much do you engage with contemporary philosophy of mind as a philosopher of religion? Yeah. How much do you engage with contemporary philosophy of physics mm. and cosmology as, as a philosopher of religion, right? Mm. And you're going to find different philosophers of religion dealing more in some of these areas than in others, but, but there's a sense in which there's flexibility within that, within that, uh, category of philosophy of religion, you can 
you know, be more, more leaning over this way, more leaning over that way. You can attempt to bring it all together. Uh, and then you've got to struggle against dilettantism, right? If you're trying to, <laughs> but that's a risk you, you don't want to be, uh, you know, uh, guilty of, of that exactly. Um, but there, there's, uh, th there's something to be said for, um, being broadly informed and well-rounded. So, you know, all of these things represent, um, important goods and we just need to keep sort of balancing them off against each other and try to find a way of being a philosopher of religion that leads to, or is conducive to your, your holistic human flourishing. Yeah, it's so good. I was smiling earlier because I, I, I just realized that this is like a philosophical therapy session for me. And <laughs> so I hope the audience is enjoying it, but it's awesome. been genuinely beneficial for me. Oh, we, good. I'm glad. Yeah. So we, we talked about analytic philosophy a bit. We talked um, a little bit about trying to capture continental philosophy. Um, we even talked about being able to use categories and labels like this. I, uh, I want to touch a little bit on the history of philosophy. And I, I just abstracted out from one of your papers. Hans Johann uh, Glock's taxonomy of mm -hmm. the history of philosophy or uh, philosophical interaction with its own history. I don't mm -hmm. even know how to say it, but there's, there's these three, these three, I don't know, labels, categories that he, he brings up extreme or intrinsic historicism, mainline or instrumental historicism and pragmatic historicism. Um, do you have those on the top of your mind? Can you, can you help us think through those? Sure. Um, and you know, one of the things I do in that paper is I sort of reduce his, his three categories to two. And so maybe I could say a bit about that as well, but, but as I recall, uh, Glock's taxonomy of, of positions about, you know, say philosophy's relationship to its own history, the extreme view, the extreme historicism, um, is, uh, just this idea that, um, philosophy, uh, is, is intrinsically a historical endeavor, uh, mm -hmm. and that you know, philosophical ideas are um, historically contextualized in ways that make it impossible to um, do philosophy in a, in a context-free sort of way, right? And um, yeah, this this is opposed to Glock's view. Glock's own view, uh, which mm -hmm. he describes as a rationalist view of philosophy, uh, is that philosophy uh, attempts to get hold of um, sort of trans-historical truths, universal trans-cultural trans-historical truths um, that are knowable a priori. Right. So you don't necessarily need to, um, understand historical context in order to, um, learn what you need to from philosophy. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then you've got a sort of instrumental view, right? Which is that, uh, well, uh, historical knowledge is, is not, um, sort of of the essence of philosophical understanding, but it, um, historical understanding is, is, uh, is useful in coming to philosophical understanding right? and so it's maybe not as essential but it's still useful and you're probably going to have to end up using uh, some historical inquiry in your philosophizing if you're going to make real progress right yeah. and then um his is the, the, the pragmatic view um is this idea that you can do philosophy in a wholly ahistorical way with no real loss uh, to what you're doing yeah. um but Sometimes it might be just pragmatically useful to approach something in a, in a historical fashion, uh, rather than trying to reason it out a priori from the beginning. That, that, the pragmatic one reminds me of, of humor's position. That, that sounds a lot like humor where he's like, yeah, you know, you could take it or leave it. Yeah. I think, I think that's what I recall as well. Yeah. That sounds, yeah. that sounds right. Yeah. So yeah, I, what, what I do from, I was from using Glock's taxonomy as a, as a starting point is I just make the distinction between what I call strong historicism, which says that 
um, paying attention to philosophy's history is an essential and intrinsic part of the philosophical enterprise. Mm-hmm. And then weak historicism, which says it's not, it's dispensable, but it might be, they might be useful. So, um, you know, uh, two of Glock's views are going to be uh, countered as strong historicism because they make historical attention essential to philosophy. But um, one of his, his pragmatist views is, is going to end up being weak historicism. Yeah. So wh- wh- where do you, do you, can you find yourself on the, uh, in, in one of the two camps? Sure. So um, coming at this from the standpoint of metaphilosophical eudaimonism, yeah. I, I think that understanding of what philosophy is um, does have implications for how we think about philosophy's relationship to its own history. And, and I think that it entails um, a, a strong historicist position that paying attention to the history of philosophy is an essential part of the philosophical enterprise. Now, why is that? Well, if you accept metaphilosophical eudaimonism, you're going to believe that the ultimate aim of philosophy is to provide wisdom for living that is grounded in a deep understanding of human nature and its relationship to the various orders that it inhabits, hmm. social, natural, cosmic, supernatural, etc., as we've discussed previously. Um, but because of the historical nature of human life, both individually and corporately, in order to understand yourself, in order to understand, I almost want to say human nature here, you've got to pay attention to the role of history and context in shaping persons, Hmm. right? So I don't deny that there is a universal human nature that is trans-historical, but concrete human beings are always composites of that universal human nature, plus some set of acquired attributes that are strictly speaking accidental. Yeah right? In the old Aristotelian sense of the term. Mm -hmm. Um, now to say that something is accidental means it's not as fundamental, right? But that doesn't mean it's unimportant. Right. And some of the accidents that we acquire through being socialized in particular socio-historical contexts prove to be very important. And they have, they have significant implications for thinking about how we might pursue human flourishing in our actual concrete context. Yeah. So to the extent that every human being conducts this quest for flourishing in a socio-historical context, in order to understand yourself, you must understand your context and why and how you've been shaped the way you are. Yeah. So, so that's one respect in which paying attention to um, history including the history of philosophy, right? Because part of what shapes us today is philosophical ideas that are now, you know, sort of loose in, in cyberspace and mm-hmm. bombarding everyone through podcasts. And that's right. Whether they're from philosophers or sophists, the ideas are philosophical oftentimes. And, yeah. and, um, and, and they, they shape, you know, who we are, they shape how we structure our lives together. They shape institutional policies oftentimes. And, yeah. And so understanding where these ideas are coming from and why they're affecting me today and, and how they're affecting me today uh, is an important part of getting your bearings as you try to, try to move towards flourishing, it seems to me. So in order to understand the self, in order to understand its social context, which is one of the important, most important larger orders 
that, that we inhabit as human beings, you need to pay attention to history. And insofar as philosophy is part of the broader context in which human beings are being shaped, you need to pay attention to the history of philosophy. Yeah, it's one of the forces bearing upon you. I also argue in, in the paper to which you're referring, um, that there's an important task uh, of monitoring, uh, monitoring progress or regress relative to the vision of human flourishing that you've come to through your philosophizing. Um, and that this requires paying attention to the history of philosophy as well. One of the things we want to pay attention to is um, how well or how badly our norms of philosophizing are serving the eudaimonistic project of coming up with wisdom for living. Mm. And so one of the examples I might give of this is just, you know, thinking of some things we said earlier, noting the fact that the way philosophy in academic contexts has been practiced since roughly the turn of the 20th century, especially in you know, English speaking uh, countries where analytic philosophy has come to prominence. Yes, that way of philosophizing does possess some virtues, but it also has some very serious deficiency. And one of the, one of the serious deficiencies is it does not pay sufficient attention to the traditional philosophical task of providing wisdom for living. Mm. Right. So if, if you are approaching philosophy as a eudaimonistic endeavor, then you're going to want to pay attention to the history of philosophy. And you might say, well, I think philosophy has lost its way in the 20th century. Yeah. I, I should say for the audience, the, uh, the paper is philosophy. I believe this is the paper philosophy and it's past a eudaim. I don't know. You say it better than me. I say eudaimonistic, but eudaimonistic. Yeah. Okay. Perspective. Yeah. Um, Aaron, where, where, where can people find that one? Uh, that, um, is, is either about to come out or just has come out, uh, in a book on philosophy and the formation of philosophical canons. Okay. Um, I can, uh, get you the, the full title and publisher info. Awesome. Yeah. I'll put so that in, in the uh, description for the, for the audience. That's huge. Uh, that, that last point that you just made, uh, I ruined it, but I wanted people to have the, uh, I wanted them to have the reference. I, it, it was so fascinating, man, because not only, so if you're, if what you're saying about analytic philosophy is true, then philosophy in the analytic tradition has lost its way, but they've also in losing their way, they've also lost, mm, not just the like the prominence, but the applicability or the the interest of the audience of the of the people at large of the populace. Um, Scott's I don't know how to say it. Is it Scott Soames? I've never pronounced Sorry. it out loud. Okay, I always see the name, but I never said it out loud before. Um, Scott Soames, you you have another paper um, reflecting on one of his books, and Soames sees philosophers as conceptual technicians, and um, in that analytic school. That's that's kind of what we are um, in the rationalistic approach of of Glock. Uh, yeah, we, philosophers are supposed to solve supremely abstract and fundamental problems by means of a priori methods such as conceptual analysis. And so then the the, the people at large are like, okay, cool. I, I don't understand that. So you guys can go do your stuff, but I'm going to go listen to like Slavoj Žižek uh, and whatever he's saying. That sounds kind of fascinating. And I'll, I'll listen to the Stoics because they're going to talk about going and lifting weights and, uh, and trying to live a good life. So I'll, that's what philosophy is to me, or maybe Nietzsche. Um, that's, so when I, when I tell people I study philosophy, these are the type of folks they, they bring up to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm like, dang it. 
I thought I got away from this with the philosophy of religion stuff. Now I say philosophy and I still get Nietzsche and stuff, other people that I'm not studying. So in my head, I'm like, fine, I'll read everyone because whoever you guys are interested in, I would love to be able to help you think about that. And maybe there's some really good stuff in there as well. But it's it's um, it's sad because I think that the the role of the philosopher in our Western societies has diminished. Um, but I wanted to ask you, what, what do you think the role of philosopher at large? Um, so we talked analytic, continental, historical. What's the role of the philosopher as public philosopher? What, what do you think? Yeah, well, I, I, I'm, I'm inclined to say that the philosopher ought to have something to say to the non-philosopher. Yeah. The philosopher ought to aim to be in possession of wisdom that would be useful for non-philosophers mm -hmm. uh, if they had, say, ears to hear. Yeah. And so, I mean, one, one thing we haven't discussed yet, and yes, you know, I, a critic of analytic philosophy and, and all of this, but it's also worth noting that we live in a, in a cultural context where um, not only has, has philosophy sort of failed the public, but the public, I think, has also failed philosophy and that wow. there just aren't many people nowadays who really are interested in what philosophy can offer them in terms of wisdom for living. Mm -hmm. This has a lot to do with what Willard called the disappearance of moral knowledge, which we talked about last time yeah. together. Um, that folks nowadays are, are more interested in living life by their own lights in a way that fulfills their own wants and desires um, than they are coming up with some sort of structured set of demands and ideal that might cause them to, you know, um, I guess, be restrict themselves in their pursuit of hedonic pleasures or right. personal satisfactions or whatever, right? It's like, well, no, you've, you've got to, just like if you're pursuing athletic excellence, you've got to discipline yourself and you've got to restrict yourself in certain ways and force yourself to engage in things that you might not otherwise engage in, you know, uh, heavy lifting. Um, that's it. Uh, similarly with being a good person, it, it doesn't just come naturally, you know, maybe up to a point it comes naturally, but if you're really going to make progress in virtue toward human flourishing, um, at some point you've got to make that a project for yourself yeah. and that's requires some discipline. That's another one that's challenging for me that, that I haven't thought about before, about the public failing philosophy as well. I think about it when I look at my YouTube analytics. <laughs> it's not as big as I want it to be. You failed me, YouTube. But um, that I am, I'm also situated in this culture, and, it, and I am still a product of it. And somehow, I, I would say God drew, drew me to philosophy through um, people asking me about my faith and me wanting mm -hmm. to understand better and help you know, people uh, with their questions. Um, but yeah, I was, I was still a product of that. And so I, I still am a member of this society. And so in a sense, um, I'm, I think I probably have some of the burden as well, um, which is fascinating. So I'm, I'm just trying to, if I can associate myself with the public as well, then I get to yell at the public a little bit mm -hmm. more, e more easily. Um, but that, that's, that's a really cool dynamic to think about that. Yeah. It's, it's not just, uh, if, if the philosopher is saying the right things, but no one's there to listen, he's just speaking to the wall. So we right. do need to have a, a moral populace who is actually fascinated and interested uh, with getting clear on how to live a good life. Right. That's awesome.
Man, this has been this has been so good. We we touched on a lot of stuff here. Aaron, you've 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 so much to say. So um you gotta come back. Please, please continue to come back and let's talk. Happy more. to come back. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Anytime. Yeah. So um as we're as we're wrapping up here, um if people are interested in hearing more from you or reading more from you, where where can we point them? Well, um, you know, I, I guess probably the best place to go is my kind of fill people. Um site. I, I don't really maintain a website of my own. I probably should, you know, uh, <laughs> adapt to the the new ways. But uh, uh, right now, uh, most of my stuff is is listed on uh, the Phil People website and you can find out about it there. Uh, email me, uh, aaron.prestonavalpo.edu. Yeah. Yeah. And um, some sometimes people will, will be interested in my guests. And if I have a pastor on or a theologian who's a pastor, they'll say, oh, I'm going to go check out their church. Um, if you if if you or or uh, your child is is interested in philosophy, you want to go study with someone. Go go study with Aaron. Go to go. Uh, Aaron, Aaron, can you can you say what what school you're at? I don't I don't know if I'm yeah, going to you. Or Valparaiso not. University in Valparaiso, Indiana. Yeah. The, yeah. Still a good place to be. Yeah, that's right. That's awesome. All right, folks. Well, that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God. <laughs>